Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat sermon by Rabbi Adam Kligfeld. So after years of thinking about it and a lot of procrastination and delay, our family finally cut the cord this week. I don't know what that phrase means. It means recognizing that we're living in a different era where consumers can be a little more choosy um, and specific about what, they, what media they want to be exposed to rather than feel enslaved to the cable conglomerates. And we no longer have cable TV. Uh, we also, by the way, cut uh, our landline, which we had not done. Many people let, let their landlines go a long time ago. So if you try to reach me on the landline, you won't get it because it doesn't exist anymore. Um, and instead of, you know, paying AT&T an enormous amount of money to watch for hundreds of channels that we never paid any attention to, now, like many of you, uh, use basically streaming services um, to fulfill our entertainment needs, you know, and if you add up all those streaming services together, they don't come close to what we were paying for cable. Uh, and it's not the case that we have less access to media. We actually have more access to media. It was a very satisfying call to AT&T. I would say I have nothing against the company, but I do have something against how much I was being charged. And it was very satisfying when I called them up and they said, how can we help you? I said, yes, I'd like to end my service. And it was like a thunderous silence on the other side of the phone, which um, I'm sure they're getting used to. In the first few days after cutting the cord, I learned something about myself that if I knew it, I hadn't processed it, or at least I hadn't focused on it. There was something that I didn't expect to miss about having cable TV be my media, um, my media options. So in addition to watching you know, series that I watch with members of my family and sometimes by myself on streaming services, when I'm channel surfing, and this is something that's been since I was a child, you know, either late at night when I can't fall asleep or when I have a couple of hours to myself on a Sunday afternoon, it just so happens that when I channel surf, what I don't do and I hadn't done was go to Netflix or Amazon, whatever, and choose a series to watch. I channeled surfed. And, you know, if a- AMC was showing once again the Shawshank Redemption and I could watch the last, last half of it, I watched it. I saw what was on Sundance Channel that exact moment, and I actually enjoyed kind of being told what my limited options were. When I would sit on the couch and just see what was on TV, the piece of me that grew up in the 70s and 80s and 90s just took for granted that my options were what the TV said my options were, even though I already had a a subscription to one of the different services that gave me basically endless options. I enjoyed on some level because I had gotten used to being told what my limited options were. Somehow it was safer than searching every TV show ever made, which is basically what we have access to now, in order to decide what to watch next. I did this unconsciously, but I basically said, TNT, TBS, AMC, Sundance Channel, you do the work for me. Limit my choices, and I will do the work from there. I'll make my limited choices as enjoyable as possible for me. We think that we want endless choice in life, as if that means endless liberation. But endless choice can be maddening and thus imprisoning. Maybe 
it starts in the womb. But there's something in the human condition that prefers closed spaces and some imposed limitation. It can feel safer and it can be holier. Parshat Pinchas, the part, one of the parts of it that we did not read this morning, has the well-known story of Benot Slovchad. Uh, Rabbi Schatz mentioned before the names that are no longer used in naming Jewish kids. I've never met a kid named Slovchad, but Slovchad was a man in the, in the desert who had five children, and they bring a petition to God to say that just because our father died with no male heirs, and at the time, biblical Torah law was only male heirs inherited, do not let our father's name and inheritance die out because the idea is that if we don't get inheritance, then then uh, our, the, we'll just kind of be subsumed into the families of the men that we marry. We want to have inheritance in the land of Israel on our own. And those daughters, one of whom, by the way, is named Noah, right? As I said in yesterday's uh, Shabbat video, in the Torah, the guy with the flood and the ark is Noah. The only character named Noah, without, without a chet at the end, in the Torah is the daughter of one of the daughters of Slavchad, which is one of the inspirations for our child's name. They make a tremendous argument to Moshe, who, who passes it along to God. They say, Tna lanu, give to us achuza, a holding, betoch acheavinu, amongst the brothers of our father. We want to lay claim to that land as well. There are a lot of remarkable things about that story. One is kind of the proto-feminism of the story, and particularly the way God responds, because God says yes, God accedes to their request. Right? So it takes quite a long time for Judaism after that to really catch up to the notion of women deserving the same access to inheritance or to access on the bima as men. But in a pretty ancient text, it's there, it's preserved, and God is on the side of the women. But there are a series of midrashim, rabbinic interpretations, that amplify what is specifically remarkable not only about God's answer, but about their request itself. According to these midrashim, spread out in different collections, including, I think, Sifrei Zuta, all of this happens at the very end of the 40th year of the wandering. All of the Israelites are close to the goal of getting to the land of Canaan, but we're not sure if they really know that. Like, we know the story in retrospect that they're about to enter, but they don't know because for them it's just been an endless wandering. And apparently, according to this Midrash, it was devastating times for that generation who had endured 40 years of wandering. Aaron had just died, and he was a significant presence out in front of them leading the rituals in the temple. The Ananeha Kavod, the clouds of glory that God had manifested God's self as throughout the desert, walk to protect them, had begun to disappear, getting them used to the fact that God would not be there in that way in the land of Canaan. You can imagine if some of the Israelites were basically saying, will this ever end? And right then, according to this Midrash, a whole group of Israelites went back to the tropes that they had been saying before the moment at Sinai, and they decided to give up on the plan, give up on the journey, give up on trying to achieve Israel. They said, let's go back to Egypt. Then, on the border of the land of Israel, they had begun to lose hope. Now, why would they want to go back to Egypt then? Maybe some ancient version of a Stockholm syndrome where they identified with their captors, imagining that even brutal captivity was better than this utter open-endedness 
of the desert. Or maybe with some magical thinking that they'd be welcomed back as free people after 40 years. Or maybe, as my dear friend and colleague, Rabbi Barry Dovkatz, with whom I spoke about this idea this week, maybe they were truly overwhelmed at the thought of living a truly free life, like they were about to experience the land of Israel. Because in the wilderness, they had been freed from slavery, but they were told where to camp, they were told where and what to eat. Everything was decided for them. It was a lack of options, but it was a comfy lack of options. But once they get into the land of Israel, in their minds, maybe it was something like the endlessness of digital streaming options. The zone of too many choices. And so they would prefer a confining womb, maybe, no matter how oppressive to this utter liberty. And at that moment, according to this Midrash I'm quoting, the daughters of Tzlovchad, going against the grain, come forward and say, we're marching forward. We want a holding in the land of Israel, meaning it's not just a proto-feminist demand. It's a proto-Zionist demand. It's a demand going against the grain, saying we want the claim in the land of Israel. The Midrash imagines Moshe saying to all of them, saying to the five daughters, all of the Israelites want to go back to Egypt and you want an inheritance in the land of Israel? Are you nuts a little bit? And the response of these five strong Israelite women, we know that in the end, we'll all be in Israel. We can't escape this destiny, so let's go claim it. In other words, in the imagination of this spectacular Midrash, when faced with the choice of going back to Egypt, the land of no choice, these women chose to be confined by and claimed by and limited by Israel. Limited by having a plot of land there that they were going to have to take care of, that they would need to cultivate. A plot of land that they were going to have to deal with during droughts and plagues. They would need to choose where and how to build a house and sustain it. They would establish families and raise children and live a life of meaning with voluntary limitations. What's interesting to me is that they weren't yearning for the American version of choice. Endless types of coffee in the supermarket, too many cable channels to ever watch, an internet that has everything you'd ever want to buy at the click of a button, literally everything. The daughter's liberation was not the Western notion of utter boundless freedom. Their choice was and their liberation came through commitment. And commitment is itself a very confining thing, a very limiting thing. I've mentioned this before in different presentations, but I'll say it again because it's relevant here. Every wedding couple that I work with gets an assignment for me to buy several books and read them together. And one of the books I asked them to read is called Mating in Captivity. Mating in Captivity. It's a profound book by the New York-based psychotherapist Esther Perel. And her basic contention in the book Mating Captivity, which is a great title, is that marriage is a captivity. That we spend all of kind of dating and wooing, trying to get to the other's commitment, trying to earn the yes, I do, right? Even though we don't say the words, yes, I do at a Jewish wedding, the notion is there. We're trying to earn the security of the other one saying, yes, I'm with you forever. But once that happens, once you get to the thing you thought you wanted, 
some of the engine driving the excitement and the flair and the wonder of relationship begins to dissipate because you've gotten the confinement that you were looking for. And that confinement can be very confining. She says the two greatest words of buzzkill in a relationship are I do. And therefore, once you are in captivity, you have to figure out how to mate, literally, intimacy, and also relationally. How do you take your confinement, your captivity, and turn it into an extremely nourishing and wonderful and wondrous womb? First, she says, one of these strategies, you have to name it as a captivity. Name it for what it is. It's magical and foolish thinking to consider marriage as anything but that. It's choosing one person to the rejection of billions of others. And now, she says, recommit to your confines. Find what is liberating and possible in this prison, in this box, this restriction, that you'd never find or replicate if you were ever again a free agent, no matter how wonderful that seems. You would never experience it if you were not owned or claimed by anyone. Now, we might scream to the world that we want freedom, an endless choice. But as Esther Perel teaches us, and the daughters of Tzlovchat, we want to be limited. We want to be claimed. And if we go back to the word that they use in their request, achuzah, from the root alef, chet, zayin, it means to hold onto, le'echoz, to clutch, to have in your grasp. It's almost as if the women understood the thickness of that etymology, that when everyone else was fleeing for some fantasy notion of being truly free, they want an achuzah, a claim, a hold, a grasp, on something that, in this case, the land of Israel, was going to claim them right back. A mutuality of devotion that we're still living out today. Israel, the land itself, still living out the tension of being claimed by us and, of course, by others. But hopefully that land still thriving more and differently than a place claimed by no one cared about by no one. And we, American Zionists, living 10,000 miles away, temporarily unable to go visit our claim in the Middle East, I hope we could say that we are still living more richly and more interestingly, and perhaps even more liberated, because we have obligations to a place and to an idea that the Jewish people have an address and to one another as we continue to help make it flourish. And I say these words and hear them in my own mouth even more poignantly during a week in which one of the Jewish American thinkers that is acclaimed by so many made the argument that the notion of a Jewish state is a dead one and we should be moving away from that concept with which I vociferously disagree. A Jew and a Zionist still listens closely to those five daughters we prefer to live with achuzot, many claims and many restrictions, rather than without any fetters upon us at all. And it's not just a Jewish condition. It's a human one. Professor Barry Schwartz, who teaches psychology at Swarthmore College, writes, quote, 
Autonomy and freedom of choice are critical to our well-being, and choice is critical to freedom and autonomy. Nonetheless, though modern Americans have more choice than any group of people has ever had before, and thus presumably more freedom and autonomy, we don't seem to be benefiting it from benefiting from it psychologically. He talks about the many ways that too much choice affects our mental health. He wasn't specifically referring to live to Netflix and Amazon and Disney and Hulu, but he might as well have been. He offers a rubric for making choices when we are overwhelmed. One, decide your goals. Two, evaluate the importance of each one. Three, lay out the options. Four, deciding which of these options is likely to help me meet my goals and then picking the winning goal. And five, of course, be ready to make another choice if things don't work out. He argues that if we do this, then we're going to be happier people, making choices based on values, on where we want to be, and who we want to be. It is in the careful, values-based, goal-oriented limitations that we put on ourselves through these choices remembering that a choice for something is always a choice against many other things. That's how our lives have happiness and comfort and meaning. We could use that wisdom now. When our lives are more constrained than usual, our homes feel smaller, our world feels miniaturized, our to-do list has somehow grown, but the time to do it all has shrunk, and we just don't know when we're going to break out and have the normal options of our lives offered to us again. Can we turn or try to turn this captivity into a womb? Can we make choices that open up possibilities as we slog through this closed-off time? I hope so. We kind of have to. And it's a version of what we do all the time because too much choice is also no good for the soul. Rabbi Katz, whom I mentioned before, he tells the story of when he served in the shul in Monroe in the early 90s, a few years before I served that very congregation before coming out to you wonderful people. It was a time that he was there when the influx of Soviet Jews to different American Jewish communities was still high, and they were claimed by those communities and cared for and given a home, probably happened here at Temple Beth Am as well. One of those Russian-Jewish immigrant families moved to Monroe, New York, and members of that shul, Itzchayim, met them at the airport, brought them to the apartment the shul had rented for them, and got them settled. They left some basic groceries in the apartment, and they let them settle in. A few days later, one of the members of the shul took them to the supermarket to do a regular shopping. You might even see where the story is going. The couple and their child entered the supermarket and were very quiet. They chose a few simple items from the produce section. And a member of the shul said, it's okay. We're here to get you on your feet. Don't worry what it costs. They got to the cereal aisle. They stopped and they looked and they stared and they seemed paralyzed. In their basic English, they said, in Russia, we were lucky if there was any cereal on the shelf. But here, there's too much. We can't choose. Choose for us. 
from Russians dealing with the overwhelm of what Kellogg and General Mills offer for breakfast nourishment, to Esther Perel casting marriage as a liberating imprisonment, to five daughters who'd rather be limited by something meaningful rather than having it all, but having it be meaningless, to an infant shocked into wailing by the openness and expanse of reality outside the comforts of the womb, to a child who thrives in structure and rules and limits, even if she doesn't enjoy it in the moment, to a Jew who'd rather struggle with claiming and being claimed by Israel than be free to choose any old spot on the map as a favorite, to me channel surfing in the middle of the night, a reverberating human cry repeats itself. I choose to have fewer choices. I sometimes find more in less. I don't want to be ownerless. I want to be claimed. Another's achuza. I consider my world smaller than it needs to be to be my womb. And sometimes I just watch what's on. Shabbat Shalom. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.